1953, the famous missionaries Jim and Elizabeth Elliot got married in Quito, Ecuador. And over the next three years, they began learning languages, hosting families, and gathering a team of missionaries. And in 1956, Jim and his colleagues made contact with the Aka people in the deep jungles of Ecuador for the very first time. And every night, Jim and his team would contact their wives on a two-way radio to check in to see how the family was doing and to update their families and their wives about all that had gone on in the jungle. Well, on January 8th, 1956, that was the plan. The men were to check in on the family. And so Elizabeth Elliot waited by the radio to hear how things had gone. But there was no call. Staring at the radio. She's waiting. Absolute silence. On the following morning, a pilot flew over the beach to look for these men. He saw only the damaged plane. So at that moment, news spread around the world and a United States search team went and found five men pierced by spears. Murdered by the Aka people. So Elizabeth's husband was gone. And now she's left in the middle of the jungles of Ecuador with a 10-month-old baby. I mean, can you even imagine the heartache? Jim was murdered while attempting to give the greatest news in the history of the world to the unreached. Just think of the thoughts that could creep into your mind. Why, God? Why? How could you take my husband? We've given our entire lives to your mission. And now this? You bring this? How am I going to survive? Where do I even possibly go? Now, I'm sure there was distress, pain, and crying out to God, but what we must know about Elizabeth Elliot is her ultimate perspective. Because as she looked at her life and the horrific circumstances that, she, that came about in her life, she said, and I quote, God will not protect you from anything that will make you more like Jesus. God will not protect you from anything that will cause you to share in his holiness. You see, she saw the death of her husband and the difficulty of her situation, not as God's agent of destruction, but as God's discipline for the sake of her holiness. She was clear, and so should we, that God will never, ever protect us from anything that causes us to share in his holiness. And that's what we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 12. Because God disciplines his children because he loves them. Which will yield the fruit of righteousness through their faithful endurance. So then Christians must endure by striving for holiness, watchfulness, and a great desire for Christ rather than the things of this world. Without said, open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 12. And while you turn there, we have two main points that we'll be looking at this morning. The manner of discipline. And number two, the necessity of discipline. So before we read, we must recognize that our section flows from Hebrews 12.3. It says, Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. 
And why would they be weary or faint-hearted? Well, simply put, because life is hard. There's persecution and adversity of every kind, but in the difficulty, we're told that God is at work. So then as we look at verses 4 through 17, the author continues for us, and he continues to encourage Christians to run the race well, all the way to the finish line. And he begins by showing us, A, the reality of discipline. So follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 11. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subjects to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. According to verse 4, these Christians have experienced suffering. They've, they've struggled against sin, but they're not, they've not yet been martyred for the faith. No, verse 4 tells us they've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. So the audience's struggle isn't persecution leading to death, at least not yet. But at the moment, their struggles against remaining sin that they must lay aside, just as we've read in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. So considering the struggle against sin and the persecution that's coming, we find the pathway to the encouragement that God only disciplines his children. Verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? So as children. Notice he begins with a rhetorical question here. Don't you remember? Haven't you, have you not forgotten the exhortation that was given? Right, which is coming just straight from Proverbs 3, 11 through 12. Look at verse 5 again. It says that my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Now two observations. First, this is the Lord's discipline. This is his correction. It comes from his hand and no other. He willingly dispenses the proper discipline to his children. And secondly, the people are not to be weary, just look, when reproved by him. So God's the one who disciplines his sons. And his discipline is not just a possibility, but it's a guarantee. Which makes tons of sense for us, doesn't it? I mean, I know it from experience. Right? When my dad would command me to never run into the street, you know what I'd do? I'd go running in the street. And every time I ran into the street, it wasn't a matter of if I'd be corrected. It was a matter of when. And in the same way, God's discipline is not a potential outcome for his children. No, it's a reality of being a part of the family. Which is what we see in verse 7. It is for discipline 
that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So Christians must endure the discipline of the Lord. But why? Well, because it's from God. It's from the Father's hand, which means it's good, it's right, and it's necessary. And so we endure suffering with the knowledge that it is God's good work that he is doing in the lives of his people. And how does the author support a statement? That God's treating you in discipline as his sons? The latter part of, his, of verse 7. Another rhetorical question. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? And here's the answer. There's not one. He disciplines all of his children. So the fact that God's treating you as children signifies that you're actually a part of his family. This is the reality of discipline, of your pain, of your persecution, of trials. God's correcting you. And you're meant to endure. This isn't meant to bring about evil for you so that you wither off and die. No, this discipline is designed so that you make it all the way home to glory. So discipline's a reality for the believer. But it's not discipline for discipline's sake. No, in verses 5-6, through six, we're given B, the reason for discipline. Verses 5 and 6 says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. And the text gives us two reasons for God's discipline. Right? First, it's because God the Father loves them, loves his children. Just look back at verse 6. For, or because, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. So in this context, discipline is not a sign of God's anger, but it's a sign of his favor and acceptance towards those that he loves, towards those that are his children. In other words, God's discipline reminds us that we are truly His children, truly children of God. Now, I want us to just step back and just think for a moment about our original audience here in the book of Hebrews. What did God's discipline look like for these Roman Christians? One word. Persecution. Right? And so when they grew tired... And when they were weary of their pain and fear and are tempted to flee the faith, the author hopes to strengthen them with the great hope that when the, what they are experiencing flows from what? That all of it flows from love. Now just think about your lives for a moment. What are you currently experiencing? What trials, what difficulty, what persecution... What sorrow are you experiencing? What have you had to endure? Right, maybe even now, life is hard. Maybe you're struggling. You, you don't know what lies ahead. Maybe you don't have even the words to express what you're feeling. But I want you to be encouraged from the word of God this morning. Our text tells us that if your faith is in Jesus Christ, he loves you. And every bit of difficulty that you're experiencing displays that he truly does love you. He has not abandoned you. 
He has not become forgetful. He has not become wicked. No, God's discipline displays his steadfast love for you. So first, Christians are disciplined by God because he loves them, but he also disciplines them because they are, number two, his legitimate children. Verse 8. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now just catch the if-then statement here. Because he's building a contrast between the disciplined and the undisciplined child. Right? If there is no discipline then you are illegitimate children, meaning you aren't God's child, you aren't in his family. I mean, think of the old TV show Full House. Right, you've got a huge house, big house with a big family, filled with the dad, uncles, and aunts, a bunch of kids, a dog, and you can't forget about the annoying girl next door, right? Kimmy. Now, if you've ever seen the show, the dad's constantly annoyed by the know-it-all neighbor. And if there's ever a dilemma or if there's a need for correction in the home, who's getting kicked out of the house? Kimmy is. She's getting kicked out because she isn't the father's child. It isn't his responsibility to deal with her. Right? The dad doesn't discipline the neighbor. He just kicks her out. So parents discipline their own children. No true son or daughter is spared by their parent for the good of the child, right? God disciplines his people, and if you are not a son or a daughter, you have no participation in his loving act of correction, reproof, or care. You miss out. That's not how we typically think about discipline. So discipline's a reality. And there's a reason for discipline, but the writer now goes a step further by giving us, see, an example of discipline, contrasting earthly fathers and heavenly fathers to make sure that we see the grandeur and beauty of his discipline towards his people. Verse 9 says, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? Because they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God the Father, disciplines us for our good. So here he's arguing from the lesser, which is found in the earthly realm. Good parents discipline their children to the greater. right? God the Father and his children, his offspring. And the result of the discipline is clear from the text. The result is honor and respect. You know, my daughter Haley, she loves to look at this big industrial fan we have in our house. And it just sits there on the ground, and she'll stand right in front of this massive object with her fingers reached out like this. And every few seconds, you know what she'll do? She'll take a couple steps inching closer to those metal blades. She's very intrigued by our fan. And every time we see her do this, we look to correct her. No touch, Haley. And the goal is that in light of the discipline, she listens sometimes, sometimes, hopefully, and in so doing, respects our word and, of course, saves her little itty-bitty fingers. Right? So this isn't motivated by anger. This is an act of care and love for our child. 
So what the author looks to help us see is that if this is the case in the earthly sense, right, if we get this example here, if we can see this, how much more then is this true with our heavenly father towards those that he loves? So just hear what he's arguing. The fatherly discipline from the creator, sustainer, and goal of all of creation is of much greater value than of our earthly father's discipline. What we see in the pages of scripture isn't just a malicious father who's in the corner of the room laughing like an evil doctor ready to destroy the world and your entire life. No. God uses every circumstance. Every single circumstance for our good. That's a fact. But here is the question. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your God and Father in heaven is out for your greatest good? So the Father is good to his children in every way imaginable. But some of you may be asking the question, and it's the right question to ask, what is the point of discipline? Right? Why does he bring about difficulty into my life? Well, look at the text. Look at verses 10b and 11. We can't miss this one. It says, but he, our heavenly father, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the father disciplines those he loves. For what? For their good. And what's the good that God intends? Verse 10, so that we, God's children, may share his holiness. So just make the connection with me. The purpose of discipline is to make us partakers in his holiness. So God is for our holiness. The good he intends is for his children to enjoy the changing work he's doing in our lives so that we dwell one day in his presence. Our faith turned to sight and beholding our maker complete, made new, without spot, and fully satisfied in his likeness. So yes, there's a great purpose to God's discipline. But that doesn't mean it's not hard. That doesn't mean it's not difficult. That doesn't mean that it doesn't cause great grief and loss and pain. No, it's a painful course of training. And that's exactly what it means when he says in verse 11, for the moment, for the moment, right now, in this life, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Right? He's contrasting the here and now of trials and persecution. And he claims that the discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Nobody's saying that discipline, this is pleasant. No, it's painful. But then he shifts his orientation and he writes, later, future, one day, discipline will yield, will bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Trained by what? Trained by God's discipline. Do you see it here? The holiness that the children share in, as we've seen in verse 10, and the fruit of righteousness soon to be provided, those are synonymous terms for us here. 
And so as sons and daughters, your father in heaven disciplines you. He corrects you. He educates you, molds you, so that you become partakers in his holiness with him for all eternity. It's the fruit of painful discipline that leads to peace from corruption when we encounter the incorruptible. When we encounter God himself. Right, so like any great Olympic athlete or sports team, there's no gain without pain. Pain is necessary to reach the reward. It takes time, concentration, long nights in the gym, dieting, even doctors to assist in the painful training to win the grand prize. And that's no different in the faithful fight of faith for the Christian. Tom Schreiner writes, even though there's a present pain, The reader should look at the long-term gain and embrace the discipline as an indication of God's love for them. So God's children don't wish away his discipline. No, the Christian embraces God's corrective work by enduring because they know that it's meant for their holiness. They know it's meant for good. And that's exactly what Elizabeth Elliot believed, isn't it? God will not keep us from anything that will make us more like Jesus. His ways are not our ways, but his ways are most certainly good. And so it's in the same manner that Jesus endured that we're called to endure in light of whatever may come. Right? Remember, he was disciplined by the hands of his afflictors. And what did he do? He entrusted himself to his Father in heaven, didn't he? Knowing the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So the cross, then the crown. The pain, then the gain. That's the great mark of true endurance, of true perseverance. And so endurance looks like accepting the discipline that God brings. So in similar fashion, the Christian is called to endure to the end because discipline leads to holiness And holiness leads to God. Now for some of you, this idea strikes a little bit too close to home. This might hurt. But I want to encourage you, even as we weep this morning, let's ask the hard questions. Is this how you view your trials? Your persecution? Your suffering that you endure? Or do you wish it all away? Are you blaming your trials on the devil? He did it. Let's get our theology right. God orchestrates. God causes storms for his saints that every storm would draw us nearer to our Savior, the Lord Jesus. So please don't miss this. As our text tells us so clearly... Our Father disciplines us because He loves us. So then what does endurance in the midst of suffering, persecution, or trials actually look like? Well, I think lots of things. But one in particular way is that it looks like a shift in our perspective. We need to cultivate a perspective like Joseph. Right, His brothers sold him off into slavery, left him for dead, and years later he declares to his brothers in Genesis 50-20, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. 
God meant it for good. That's the perspective we ought to have in the darkest moments of our lives. The orientation that God is for me. He's not against me. He's my father. He loves me and he withholds no good thing from me. So then what do we do? In light of that truth, we tell ourselves, I'm not going to run away. I'm not going to coast on the race. I'm not going to isolate myself from the rest of the church family. I'm not going to turn back to my former manner of life. No, faithful endurance looks up in the storm and says, whom do I have in heaven but you? Where else will I go? If you take everything, I still consider it gain. Why? Because I have him. I need nothing else. Satisfied in his likeness. So the Christian must run with endurance to the end, knowing that God disciplines them for their greatest good. But then the author unpacks in detail, number two, the need for discipline. It's a renewed call to run and endure all the way to the end. You see, God's not only working for the sake of our holiness, as we've seen in verses 4 through 11, but then we are called to actually and actively pursue holiness. And that's what we find in verses 12 through 17. So follow along as I read. Starting in verse 12. Therefore... So in light of everything we have just talked about, right? The necessity of faith in God who lovingly disciplines us in the midst of the race. Look what he says. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now notice the similarity between verse 1 and verses 12 through 13. Verse 1 commands us to run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then in verse 12 through 13, right, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet. So you have sandwich exhortations that are placed at both sides of the section on discipline to encourage us to do what? To endure, to run the race well. So chins are up, arms are at the ready, and knees are strong because we must endure all the way to glory. But the the language of this verse isn't random. No, verse 12 purposely draws the reader's attention because it's coming directly from Isaiah 35, 3-4. It's clicking for these Jewish Christians. And just listen to what verses 3-4 through of Isaiah tell us. Strengthen the weak hands... And make firm the feeble knees. Verse 10. The ransomed of the Lord shall return. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighting shall flee away. When? Verse 2 tells us. When they shall see the glory of the Lord. Do you hear the connection? 
It's a reminder of the promise of future glory. Currently, they must endure. They must strengthen the weak and the weary with the promise that future glory awaits. Eyes on the prize as they turn the final corner of the race, which takes place where? On straight paths for their feet. The path of righteousness, as we see in verse 11. And with the great purpose that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather... Be healed. When does the healing come? At the finish line. So those who are spiritually lame find final healing if they run with endurance on straight paths and they continue following Jesus, looking to Jesus, rather than turning off course and headed towards their old life. So here's the point. Endurance in the race is motivated by the promise of future glory when we enjoy God in his celestial city. Not only is there a race for holiness, but holiness is required. Verse 14 says, Strive for peace and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now this set of exhortations may seem A bit odd, because striving for peace doesn't seem to be linked with what the author's been arguing about discipline. But it does when we recognize verses 12 through 13 have called the Christian to seek the path of righteousness. Right? In fact, verse 11 tells us that those who are disciplined bear the peaceful fruit of what? Of righteousness. Of holiness. So as we look at the fight for holiness, the author gives four pieces of advice for what it looks like to finish the race of faith well. And I want you to see it because you can see it right in our text here. So verse 14, strive for peace and holiness. Verse 15a, guard against gracelessness. Verse 15b, protect against idolatry. And lastly, verses 16 through 17, flee from impurity. So first, strive for peace and holiness. Just look at verse 14. Strive or pursue peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. According to the text, we're called to pursue two things right off the bat. Number one, peace, and two, holiness. It's without question that for Christians, we look to pursue peace with everyone. But is this speaking of peace with all people in all places and in all the world? Well, that'd be great, but that's probably unlikely. So in, in this text here, the Christian pursues peace with everyone within the church. It's essential. You can't stir up one another to love and good deeds until the day draws near, as chapter 10 tells us, when you aren't at peace with those whom you're supposed to be encouraging, right? That doesn't go well. Running the path of righteousness looks first like a race after reconciliation with our brothers and sisters. So let me ask you, are there any relationships within the church that have bumps and bruises? The answer should be, yeah, probably. The next question is, are you at peace with them? Are there people in the church that you are avoiding right now due to your disagreements? Are there those that you're withholding peace due to your pride? Last question. Are you desirous of peace? 
I pray that this isn't the case for any of us, that we would be withholding peace. But if it is, I want to encourage you to make peace with others. Make peace with the people of God as an outworking of your pursuit of holiness. So we not only strive for peace, but we strive for holiness. Look at verse 14 again. Without holiness, it's impossible to see the Lord. Now, it's important to strive for holiness in our own hearts and lives. That's clear. Personal holiness is significant. But this call to holiness can't be separated distinctly from the rest of our advice given by the author here. No, we, as the people of God, should be jealous. We should be jealous for the holiness, the purity of our brothers and sisters. We should desire that they'd be more like Jesus. Knowing that without holiness, it's impossible to see God. So the holiness of his people is essential. We must pursue it. Why? So we might see him. So that we might see God. And the author of Hebrews isn't alone on this particular reality, right? Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. Just notice the motivation that Jesus declares for purity in heart. It's not because of the reward for great music in heaven. It's not because we get the joy of seeing great Aunt Eunice when we, be, when we are there in heaven or because of the fellowship with the saints of old. No, the greatest goal at the end of the finish line is God himself. Psalm 73, 28. The nearness of God is my good. He is the reward. He is the prize of heaven. And so apart from holiness, you don't get him. Brothers and sisters, we must pursue holiness by God's grace and his power. Right? Continuing on the path of holiness is not optional for the people of God. We can't get lazy or callous to the command because apart from holiness, you don't get God. You get God's eternal damnation. So if you have not put your faith in Jesus, I want us to be very clear. If you have not put your faith in Christ, you most certainly cannot pursue holiness. And you're not a child of God. But here's the hope. Today, today can be the day of salvation for you. And so I appeal to you to recognize your abundant need, that you're a sinner and deserve of a rescuer. And I appeal to you to put your trust in Christ, the one who can save you to the uttermost, the one who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross that you deserved, the one who took the hostility you deserved on himself so that by faith you might be made holy, so that you might see God. So trust him and glory in his presence forevermore. Now, we're not talking about a few quick steps here. Let's just be clear. We're not talking about a few quick steps to life-changing success right here. No, this takes spirit-empowered work brought about by God himself. So we need to be clear on that as we even move forward to these next exhortations for the Christian on the path of righteousness. We must guard against gracelessness and protect against idolatry. Look at verse 15. 
the author writes, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. Now just look at how verse 15 begins. I love these little, little phrases. See to it. Oversee. Watch over. That's the connotation to the word. See to it. Look over. Oversee that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. But here's the question. Who's to oversee the church? Whose job is it to watch over everybody? Is it the music teams? Love those guys. Life group leaders? The elders? Yes, 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 of course. Here's the reality of the situation in, the, in, in, in light of the connotation of see to it. This is all our Work. God has called us to be robust and faithful church members, not just half-hearted church attendees. So it's the privilege of every single church member to join in on the battle against sin, that we reach the end, that we make it, that we are holy as our God is holy. So the people of God have a job to do as they run the race to the end. They see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And as we know, those whom God has saved by his grace will fully and forever obtain the grace of God. So then what does the author have in mind here? Well, as we've seen in earlier warnings, those who run back to their old ways, right? Those who say, forget this, forget this God, forget this Christianity, right? It is those who turn away and commit apostasy since they don't actually continue in God's grace. So then the see to it is no different than what we were told in Hebrews 3, 12 through 13, which says, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, any of you in the church, an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We see to it that they obtain the grace of God. But how does this apply to us? Right? How do we guard against gracelessness in our church? Well, we come alongside our family. We come alongside one another. We encourage. We pray for one another in the fight of faith. We read the Bible together. We go to life group. We do life together. At every single point in time, we remind our brothers and sisters of the truth. Jesus is better. He's worthy. He's worthy. Don't run away. Life is hard and God is good. He's for you. We're for you. We love you and God loves you. Keep the faith. Persevere to the end. Make it all the way home. That's how we do it. We don't do this in isolation. We do this together. And in a similar way, we protect against idolatry. Look what it says in the latter part of verse 15. See to it. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now verse 15 isn't warning us against bitterness toward one another, although it's certainly possible that bitterness takes root in our churches. But it's the root of bitterness 
that the author has in mind here, which is the language that's used in Deuteronomy 29.18. Just listen to this verse. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Repeated, beware lest there be among you, notice, a root poisonous, a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. So the root of bitterness in Hebrews 12 and showcased in Deuteronomy 29 are linked. It speaks of one who abandons the Lord and it looks to other things, right? They serve the idols of the nations rather than the Lord. So idolatry is intolerated among God's people. It never has and never will be. They serve idols rather than God himself. It shouldn't be tolerated. It must not spring up and cause trouble. Why not? Because by it, when it springs up and when it causes trouble, it leads to defilement. It leads to poison. It leads to death. And just think about our audience here for a moment. Right? They're continuously tempted to run from Jesus to the things of the old covenant. So if they decide to run from Jesus and go back to the temple and to the things of old, then what they are doing is making their Jewish roots, their past, the idol in place of Christ. So then the church has a responsibility to one another to see to it that those in our midst are not running after other things. That the members of the church are committed to one another's holiness rather than those being defiled. And lastly, the final exhortation. Flee from impurity. Verses 16 and 17. It says, See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Just notice the command. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy, right? Impure, like Esau. But what's the big deal with Esau? Well, he's used here as an analogy. If you remember in Genesis 25, Esau was so hungry that he traded his birthright to his brother Jacob in return for a cup of stew. So in verse 16 here, the audience is encouraged to not follow the example of Esau, right? If the Christians in the first century were going to go back to their old ways of life and leave Jesus, commit apostasy, it would be no different than what they saw in Genesis 25. It would be no different than Esau's sin. The whole Bible is very clear. Esau was a fool, absolute fool. And he later regretted the trade, but never truly repented. Look at verse 17. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, the one that he gave up, he was rejected because he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now this verse isn't giving us a hypothetical situation where someone might not be given the chance to repent. No, of course not. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says no matter your background or the weight of your sin, God delights in true, true, true repentance. Today can actually be the day of salvation. 
And so what we see here with Esau is that he never actually truly repented. He regretted the trade-off, but not the sin that he committed in the first place. He wasn't grieved by his sin. He was grieved by the loss of his blessing. So he serves as an example of one who doesn't want God, but only the benefits that God provides. He looks down the road less traveled and he says, no, Jesus isn't worth it. That's too much of a hassle. That's a burden I am unwilling to take on. But that isn't the case for the Christian. I pray to God it is not the case for any of you. God's Spirit changes us to love Him and hate what He hates. Real holiness is not just cautiously avoiding punishment. But real holiness is loving God with a burden to do the will of God, no matter what may come. So in the face of sexual immorality and impurity, the Christian sees the beauty of the Savior, and he declares, Jesus is better. Right? Christians fight the fleeting temptations of sexual sin and impurity, knowing that they have a greater reward in Christ. I don't want stew. I want him. And I'll forsake all else to have it because if I'm not living for him, I've wasted my life. So how are you doing with your fight against sin? Better yet, are you fighting? What do you... What do your friends not know about you that they should? What lies are you prone to believe about your heart and the value you place on your sin? Do you crave the great reward of Christ more than you do your sin? Or are you like Esau who willingly gave up his life for the sake of one measly bowl of stew? Brothers and sisters, we must run well. And it actually, actively looks like something. Including being one who embraces God's discipline. So I want to encourage you this morning. Pursue peace. Strive for holiness. Don't let your suffering discourage you and tempt you to leave the race. Don't forget that in your suffering, your Father is sovereign and He loves you and He designs for you what is best for you. Don't be sold out to idols. Don't be like Esau who would not lay aside even a single meal but traded away his soul. Finish well. Run to the glory of God and consider him who perfectly ran the race of faith before you and for you that you one day make it all the way home. In his presence, fullness of joy and pleasures at his right hand forevermore. Allow me to pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of who you are and what you have done through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Father, we thank you for the one who came and lived and died and ran the race of faith perfectly in our place. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. May we consider him as we run. That we be faithful to the task. That be those who embrace God's discipline. That we pursue peace and holiness. That we would truly let go of every single idol. That we would lay aside every single meal. And that we would trust and treasure Jesus with our lives. Knowing that apart from him, we don't get you. So Lord, we pray that you give us a burden to know you, to trust you, and to enjoy you forever. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.